3: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Klass. Ed, welcome. Glad to be here, Ron. Today, we have a special treat, uh, a gentleman who is an absolute legend in pricing circles, and I'm proud to call a friend. I, I met Bob some time in the early 2000s, and I'll just read a little bit of your bio here, Bob. I I, I could go on and on with this, but uh, Robert Cross is the chairman and CEO of Revenue Analytics, and he's widely recognized as the foremost expert in the field of revenue management. I mean, folks, the, the Wall Street Journal called Bob the guru of revenue management. Uh, he's helped uh, develop leading revenue management capabilities for companies like Coca-Cola, Marriott, Intercontinental Group. Um, He also founded one of the first revenue management companies, um, which was Talus, which was acquired uh, in 2000 for $366 million. So, Bob, welcome to the soul of enterprise.
1: Thank you, Ron. I am delighted to be here.
3: And I'm just going to start out by asking you, how does an Air Force pilot or, or, or somebody who was formerly in the Air Force and flew uh, become a lawyer and then get into revenue management at Delta Airlines? Well, how does that happen?
1: Uh, it's been a crazy journey, but uh, like a lot of things in life, it's just you just take what life gives you and, and go forward. But uh, actually, my, my undergrad degree was chemistry, so this is even wilder. So I, uh, uh, got up. So when I finished my undergrad degree, I actually wanted to go to law school, but the Vietnam War intervened. I got a draft notice, but rather than, uh, be drafted and be a ground pounder, I decided to go into the Air Force. And while I was in the Air Force, went to officer training and then into pilot school. But before I finished pilot training, I, uh, the war ended, fortunately and I went back to law school and from there I I got a job with the uh, Texas Court of Appeals and, in Austin, Texas and the one of the judges on the Court of Appeals knew someone at the Texas Aeronautics Commission so I went to the Texas Aeronautics Commission and ultimately became the general counsel there and while I was the general counsel at at the TAC, we had a couple of lawsuits. One on the same side as Delta, and one opposed to Delta Airlines. And one of them actually went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, we won that case against Delta. Delta then hired me as a lawyer. So that's that's kind of that's the <laughs> first part of the journey.
3: And and of course, Once, this was during the days of de- uh, of regulation of the well, airlines, right?
1: That's right. Well, and when I arrived at Delta. Airline deregulation had just started. So the, the airlines were deregulated and actually a, the funny part of the story is Delta had been profitable for 50 years and within a year of my coming to Delta it became unprofitable. So hopefully there's no correlation between my arriving and, and Delta becoming unprofitable. What, what happened though was deregulation. And Delta was a great, it was a great operator. Uh, of the airline but it didn't have a good sense for the marketing what the consumer wanted and and what it should have done. So it started losing money and this was in the late seventies, early eighties, was losing money. What it should have done is gone out and hired some brilliant marketing people, brought them in, but uh they had a promote from within policy that was very strong there. And the CEO who was Dave Garrett at the time kind of engineered my move into the marketing department and uh, so so I ended up senior role in marketing, uh, but with no not only no airline real airline marketing experience, no marketing experience in fact, I'd never even had a business course in my life so that's that's my story. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense.
3: And, and, you, and I remember you telling the story. You landed in the in the basement with a, some people trying to figure out pricing and the windowless, and and you just got into revenue management. That, well, that's right. And so they gave me a
1: kind of a broad base, do, you know could do anything. It was more like an internal consulting position in, in marketing. And they said just do do anything, look at anything. So nothing was off limits. And so I did all the the typical things. I looked at our route structure. I looked at our fleet mix. Delta had bought too many large aircraft, and you know, and uh, the business traveler wants high frequency, you know, and we needed smaller airplanes and with higher frequency. Talked to Boeing, and you know, that would have cost tens of billions of dollars to refleet the airline. I looked at the advertising programs. The advertising was really. Uh, Ineffective. Um, truth is, it was pathetic. So we talked to the people from BBDO who came down, and they gave us this great pitch and said, "Oh, we're going to come up with this fantastic campaign and laid it all out." And it was really nice and slick. I asked, "Well, how much is all this going to be?" And they said, "Oh, roughly depends on region, frequency, blah blah blah. About five hundred million dollars." I said, "Well, uh, well, wait a second. You know, we're losing money at the time." Right, so I said, "Well, if we if we engaged in this program, what would we what would be our ROI? How much money would we make? How many more tickets would we sell?" And they said, "We don't know. How do we know? We're an advertiser." You know? right. <laughs> and and I, it, you know, at the time, we would have been willing to invest if we thought there was an ROI. So, so I had to keep looking. And and Ron, you'll appreciate this: I'm walking around. Delta with my yellow legal pad because I was a lawyer. That's that's all I really knew, and I that's when I came across these fifty people who were in the basement of the reservations building, and their job was to determine how many discount seats would be on each future fl- Delta flight. So the what the problem though was that Delta had fifteen hundred flights per day. Uh, they were responsible for the next year's worth of inventory, every flight departure. And each flight had about 10 different fare levels ranging from $699 down to $69, right? And they had to allocate, well, how many seats are we going to sell at each fare level? Which you do, you know, you do the math, so there's, that's 550,000 flights that these 50 people are responsible for. That means everybody's responsible for eleven thousand flights, right? Right. And I thought, no wonder we're losing money. (laughs) This is an impossible task. (laughs) So that's kind of my introduction to this whole space, and I I literally stumbled on it. Right, just walking around the halls. I'd love to tell the story because it's people say, "How did you get into this area?" And I say,
3: "I stumbled on it," literally. I just I do I love that story. I mean, and then you and then you figured out that because they were selling so many discounted seats that that could have been sold to last minute, you know, high, higher paying uh, business travelers and vice versa, sometimes a plane would go out half empty because you didn't have enough discount seats. Mm-hmm. You figured out they were leaving some 200 million dollars on the table. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. By misallocating seats like that. Mhm. Mm-hmm. and and nobody and you said it was really hard to convince people that we were leaving this much money on the table. <laughs> well that that's right
1: so I did my first back of the envelope calculation and and figured it was it was about 200 million dollars that we were leaving on the table like you said just the misallocation of the the seats but I was afraid no one would believe that number so I cut it in half cut it in half again and I finally kind of pitched this idea that if if you Give me ten million dollars, basically, to bring in some computer systems and to kind of reorganize the department. I uh, will get you forty million dollars in return so that that was kind of my pitch at the time and uh, and then when we by the the time we went through the the process and it, it all ended the first year the the CFO actually said that what we did was worth three hundred million dollars to... Delta. Right. But the thing that I love about it, and this is apropos to your show, is that so we had the chance to to change equipment, we had the chance to enhance the product, we had to you know, I was given the freedom to do all these things in marketing, but we didn't do any of that stuff. We used knowledge to generate revenue, more knowledge of what customers wanted, what they were willing to pay at what point in time to generate more more revenue and profit. And all the, all the revenue basically dropped to the bottom line because it didn't cost us anything. It cost us right. very little.
3: You know, I, I read your book, Bob, uh, Revenue Management, Hardcore Tactics for Market Domination, which you published in 1997. And I read it in May of 1997. In fact, I think it's one of the very first, you know, business pricing books that I actually read, you know, outside of like economics books with price theory and things like that. And I remember thinking, wow, this this exposes the, the complexity of airline pricing and how this whole thing started. And I just remember being absolutely blown away because you say in there the objective of revenue management is to sell the right product to the right customer at the right time for the right price.
1: That's right. That's our <laughs> and, mantra. And,
3: it, <laughs> and, it, and it, it's so customer focused. I, I just absolutely love it. Um, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the copy and I don't know if you remember this, but when we had dinner together, you, me and my dad, mm-hmm. uh, you signed this book and you signed it to my dad even though it was my book, and you said, uh-huh. Sam, to a great guy and an insightful barber. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's, good. <'cause> That's great. <laughs> one of the things that blew me away about your book is in your acknowledgments, you talk about your your barber, I guess, uh, is it, uh-huh. uh, uh, I guess she passed away from cancer, but Carol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you talk about. How you were having discussions with her when she cut your hair about how she could no. use revenue management in her one chair barbershop. Right. I'll tell you a funny story after we turn from the break on that, but I just that just blew my mind that you were applying this to a, a barbershop. So yeah. <laughs> my dad, my dad keeps saying, "When do I get my Bob Cross book back?" I said, "I'm not giving you that book back. <laughs> that's my, that's my okay. book." <laughs> Let me I'll
1: be glad to get your dad another copy or get you your own copy.
3: <laughs> well, so, Bob, we have to take our first break here. I, I just knew this would fly by, but uh, when we cut back, we'll, we'll get Ed in here, too, because I know he's dying to ask you a bunch of questions. But, folks, in the meantime, you can follow the show live on Twitter at hashtag AskTSOE. We will post full uh show notes on this uh including links to bob his company his book and he's also got some fascinating articles that i'm hoping we can talk a little bit about today too and we will have those up at verisage.com tsoe in the meantime we want to hear from our sponsor leading results
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
2: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com.
4: Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results.
2: Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kluss. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V E R A S A G E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
4: And we are with Robert Cross, who the Wall Street Journal calls the guru of revenue management. And and Bob, I want to ask you about that term, revenue management. And because I think it's, it's misunderstood by a lot of folks. At least my perception is that's misunderstood because people think it's just about extracting the most that you possibly can from the customer. It seems almost like a gouging thing. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we, that we've found in, in working with professional firms or really anyone who's, who has applied some of these principles in pricing is not only does it make the company more profitable, but it actually makes the customer happier.
1: That is so true. And I mean, the, if you do it right, it's a win-win proposition because, first of all, the the first principles really is is the customer has all the money, and you want it, right? So if you're going to do something, you have to make sure it's valuable to the customer and they get it. And to get back to the the airline example, one of the... the the genius things, and one of the reasons the revenue management worked in the airlines is that we did save seats for high, you know, the for the last minute passengers that are willing to pay the full fare, but we spent an equal amount of time looking for where are the where are the opportunities to where seats would not otherwise be sold and give deep discounts to the passengers, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you've got to do both ends. You've got to understand where there are customers out there that will pay more for our product. When and where are they willing to do that? And where can we discount with discretion to gain share or gain customers? And and with regard to the
4: the, the idea of the, this gap between what the customer is willing to pay versus the price, and you know that consumer surplus, a um, question I had for you is is that the, the max that a customer is willing to pay is that really the full value to the customer, or is there a difference really between the the price, the maximum price they're willing to pay, and ultimately the value that they do receive?
1: You know that. That actually kind of is a great question because it leads into well what 's the long term value you don 't want to to be very short term in price gouging and or you know or or getting the max for the short term and I think this is where some of the airlines had made mistakes in the early days of the of the revenue management and and that is you 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 want to get the most for the transaction, but you also need to make sure that you're giving long-term value proposition to the to the uh, to your customers. We've done some work in the cable uh, business. The cable companies are are known for jacking up prices. And in, in our particular client, I'm not going to mention who it was, had had done that. In fact, they had consultants, other consulting companies coming in and just say, you know, when someone comes off of a promotion, as you know, most people, when they sign up with a cable provider, they come in on a discounted promotion, right? So the question would be, once the promotion ends, well, what's the price go to where does it you know does it revert back to the full price or somewhere in between and and our client had been bumping people up to the full price and then and then they you know they would lose they get a lot of churn of customers etc and and what we helped them understand is well where where should they be going what should, what is that appropriate price so that you'll keep them long term right mhm and, yeah. and that, that's the question. And what's the, what is the lifetime value of the customer for you at what price point?
4: And, and we, we had uh, Joe Pine on last week talking about the experience the e- economy. And I, I just uh, there's so many places that I can go off of what you just said. But I'm going to go to this one uh, in the entertainment industry. You know, We, we mentioned now that uh, revenue management, yield management is being employed – in a lot of different spaces, and one one of them is in the entertainment industry. And I I'm a huge Billy Joel fan, and I have you know his album from from the uh, his his two thousand years concert, which was the the the, the one time only uh, you know January first two thousand uh, to to the new millennium, right? And mm-hmm. he says during the concert you know, um, how many of you paid, you know, this, you know, $1,999, yeah. right? You know, because yeah. he, because he, can, and this is the year 2000, right? He can't Mm-mm. believe it, right? And here's a guy who's been at the pinnacle of his career that someone would want to pay for an experience like that, right? <laughs> right, And that he, it, it, and, and I think artists still to this day have a problem with the idea of selling different prices for different people and and, and selling to the rich people in the front mm-hmm. row um, mm-hmm. to the point where I think I, I, th- I just heard a Tim McGraw concert where where they sold they sold out so quickly and it wasn't Tim McGraw it was uh, another country artist because he he insisted on selling everything at you know $75
1: <laughs> yeah, Right. But you know, what's interesting is you look at the, the data and you see what happens is he can say, well, I want, and, and they the artists will say this, I want the the average person to be able to access my concert, etc. But what happens on the other end, as you know, is ticket, you know, resellers grab all the tickets or individuals grab the tickets right. and resell them themselves. It's not, he's, his objective is to, if it is to make it accessible to all these people is he's not fulfilling his objective and and other people are actually arbitraging that that opportunity because there's a gap between the the price that he's posted and the and what the market price is right mm-hmm. and so he's he's losing out and I mean Tim McGraw may not need the money but but uh, it would be better for him to to give the tickets to his his fans or have them you know sign up your, if you're Tim McGraw loyal get get it through that website, etc., rather than the normal channels.
4: Sure, and, and contrast that. I don't know if you follow this at, at all, but there's there's a guy by the name of Trent Reznor, who's the the guitarist for Nine Inch Nails, mm-hmm. who who is a master pricer. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, because, because he f- fully understands this idea of, of pricing experience, and another uh, artist, Radiohead, I don't know if you've you followed this, mm-hmm. they put out an album where you could pay zero for it. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but the, key, the key was you had to go into the system and type in 0.00 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to say that, yes, I'm going to be that cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and as a result, they, they netted more per download than they would have if they had gone through a record company.
1: That, that's fascinating yeah no that's yeah. that's probably true <laughs> they actually net net out of it, but it really kind of gets back to and this is what we've been talking about is the question of what's the value to the individual consumer, and that's what 's fun for for us so all of our clients are most of fortune five hundred companies big big companies, but to understand if they have if they have tens of thousands of products and they're selling to millions of consumers, how do they know what each individual consumer is willing to pay? But we can do that. We can do the analysis through looking at every individual transaction. So it may be billions of records and analyzing billions of of, uh, rows of data to understand, well, what, what customers are willing to pay more you know, in which in which customers are willing to pay less, and when and when and where, and or how do we capture uh, people who aren't our customers if we have the right product at the right price point? And one uh, of the and again, it's it's just it's purely a matter of statistics and and cleaning uh, the knowledge from the data that you have.
4: And I just want to pick up on that because that is such an important point. Because one of the things that Ron and I see, and maybe it's because we do work with so many accountants, is them thinking that somehow pricing is a science. Mm-hmm. But what you've just what you've just described is yes, it, we're, we have you know billions of data records, but ultimately,
1: really, I, I, it's more art than science, isn't it? Yeah, I I don't think so. I think it is a great blend of art and science. In fact, I'll. Let me give you uh, an example. We just had a, a seminar that we put on for our clients and prospects, and the theme of the seminar was collaborative analytics. And what we were talking about is how do you merge the prodigious power of computing with all of this analysis with the human judgment and intuition? And I think that's where, that's the combination of the art and science, and that's where Pricing in particular is becomes really really powerful. One of the examples I used at the seminar was the so we all know that in 1997, Deep Blue, IBM's Deep Blue, beat Gary Kasparov, right? Huge, Mm -hmm. huge, you know, uh, victory for computers over the the mild, you know, human brain, right? And and that was that was really fascinating, but. But a lot of people don't know that after that happened, Kasparov, you know, really made him think. Well, what? How do? How do people and computers? How, how does that work? I mean, have, do we give up? Have we given up? Have, have we lost the battle for intelligence? To basically, Deep Blue was just a calculator, right? Very powerful uh-huh. <laughs> calculator could do 200 million moves per second, but it was just a calculator. So Kasparov decided to have a freestyle competition. Freestyle Computer Chess Competition. He held it in 2005. And so you could have teams of grandmasters coming together. You could have supercomputers. And by that time, there was a supercomputer called Hydra that could do 50% more moves than than Deep Blue could. But the do you know about this, Ed? I, 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 I've, I've heard
4: part of this story. No, I don't. I've heard part of the story. I haven't heard the whole thing. So so
1: it was won by a couple of guys named Steve Crompton and Zachary Stevens. And you say, well, who the hell are they? Well, (laughs) they, and that's what the chess world said, because they were relative unknowns in the world of chess. Well, did they invent Hydra? Were they supercomputer? No, they used an ordinary PC. And their secret weapon, though, was collaboration. They knew when to rely on their judgment and instinct they were good enough chess players to do that and they also knew when to rely on the on the pc and the computer and that to me was was the great example of collaboration and every freestyle chess championship since then has been won by these collaborative teams neither grandmasters on their own so it's not an art so it's not a a science either it's really a combination of the two and i see i see that what we do in pricing is the exact same way I mean, I, I ch- it's funny. I challenge anybody, no matter how great they are, and it was the same with those, those 50 people in the basement. You know, they, some of them, years and years of experience watching their flights. They had the Atlanta to Washington flight. They knew the flight inside and out. But they can't monitor. They can't manage the 11,000 flight departures they're responsible for. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, yep, if, they yep. tried, if they tried to, as you said, uh, make an art out of it, it wouldn't work. It just would not
4: work. It's a it's They're a really players. interesting intersection, isn't it? Then it's yeah. it's the, this culmination point, almost of a, a singularity, if you will.
1: <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. But on the other hand, if you say we're going to let the computer do it on its own, there's all this information out there that's not in a database, right? And can't necessarily can't be in a database. And part of it is, well, who's not buying your products, right? Mm-hmm. That's not going to mm-hmm. be in your database necessarily, right? Right, and, and right. So that's where kind of the the art comes into, or the and and computers aren't really good yet about looking at long term customer value and all the other more subjective things, or you know building re, you know relationships and other things we know that are important to the sales. So, so right, it's just it is it's just a fascinating, and, and I love the the way you described it. Ed. It is at the intersect of, of these two. Uh, the science is the science and the art.
4: Right. Well we had we interviewed uh, Rory Sutherland, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but w- one of the, the things that he did, demonstrations that he talks about and, uh, and I'm using this from uh, from a show we did last week, believe it or not again, but it, is he says they, they, they did a, a study where a car company, instead of giving three thousand dollars off of the list price, added three thousand dollars on top of the trade in. Uh-huh. And accounted yeah. for a, a, a huge increase in the number of cars sold. Mm-hmm. Now, a computer is going to make that make that calculation the exact same way, <laughs> but a human, <laughs> but a human being seeing three thousand dollars on top of the trade-in price
1: is going to see it differently. That, that is a great point. Yeah, it, it is how the, how do they perceive it? Right? does mm-hmm. the customer perceive it? And that's really that it goes to another great point that that uh, we. Need to make and we have to make with our clients and that is often prices are set basically inside out that you're, or, you know, the, the customer, the company is looking at this is the way we perceive our product and we think the value is instead of the outside in looking at well how does the customer really perceive it and it's different. Absolutely.
4: Well, yeah, Ron, right. I agree, Ron. This is going to be the fastest hour of my life here. We're I'm already through this sec- second segment. I told you. <laughs> up, up, I know, up against the break. and uh, But we just want to remind you that you can get a hold of us at Ask uh, hashtag askTSOE on Twitter. Or uh, if, after the show, look at our show notes at verisage.com slash TSOE. But right now, we want you to hear from our sponsor, Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
3: What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul
2: We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Bob Cross. And Bob, I was looking at the back of your book, and it's blurred by three people. Robert Crandall the chairman and CEO of American Airlines at the time, who who basically said revenue management's the single most important technical development in transportation management. But you also had Bill Marriott Jr. um, blurb the book. And I know you've worked with Marriott. And I just, you've probably heard this story, but just for the benefits of our listeners, uh, I read this story and I just thought it was so funny. Somebody wrote, yield management or revenue management is not new. Indeed, in the third millennium, Joseph and Mary had to be accommodated in a stable 2,000 years ago because there was no room at the inn but perhaps the innkeeper had identified them as customers who could not afford a premium rate on a night of peak demand and had decided to hold out for better business. After all, he might have known that there were three kings in town who had to yet find accommodation. (laughs) I love that story. Anyway, when I first heard you speak at Professional Pricing Society, you told a story of Bill Marriott Jr. working at the – the the counter the you know the night desk and uh, talking about watching families drive up in station wagons can you mm-hmm. can you tell that story because mm-hmm. I just love that
1: no that it it, it is a great one because we we had gotten in and done a lot of work for uh, the uh, Marriott and and he was a big advocate of ours but he was fond of telling me this is not new you know you you think all this is is new and, and fancy and he did tell me the story about when he was. Uh, running the desk. It was the Key Bridge Marriott. This was in 1950s, in, in the 19, late 1950s. And he was manning the drive-up window, and And they had a very simple pricing structure. So it was $9 a night. You know, you can tell this is 1950s, right? Uh, and $1 for each additional person. So they could get with a roll-away bed, if, if, if family of five, up to $13 per room. So he would, as the, the day wore on, he did this kind of mental forecast of are we going to fill the the hotel up or not as and people would drive up and then, as if the in the afternoon and he was predicting oh there's there's going to be more demand than we have rooms he started he'd look lean out the window and he'd, if there's only one person, maybe two in the car, and he knew a family with the station wagon was going to drive up later he'd say oh sorry no no vacancy you know." <laughs> and that was the way he he managed his revenues and it was and it was one of the rules in, of of my book was you save your seats for the or save your your assets for the most valuable purposes right so so that's what he was doing but the same the very same concept that now right. of course they have 3000 hotels around the the world and, and we we actually have done a system for them it's uh, he, you know, nobody sticks their head out the window anymore. We, we basically forecast every room every night, and we run an optimization model with about 90 million decision variables every night to set the prices and and the room availability. So, it's a lot more complex than it was in the 50s, as ever, everything is, right?
3: Right. You talk in one of your articles that I really like because it, it, much like your book, you kind of give the history of the revenue management movement. And this is a, this is your article milestones in the application of analytical pricing and revenue management from 2010. And you talk about how this all started in the airlines and then it kind of branched out into the, Into the hotels, and then you talk about UPS and FedEx picking this up, and then the Canadian broadcasters, ABC, NBC, and you talk about it moving into the automobile companies at Ford, casinos, um, obviously sports entertainment opera like you and Ed have already talked about, and I I just, you know, where do you see pricing going today? I mean, it just keeps branching out, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the things that I... I really love about this uh, this business and this industry, and I've got to tell you, when I first so when I first left Delta to start my company, the the company I started was called I called it Aeronomics, thinking this is only airline right airline economics, and (laughs) and it's just so short-sighted because look at all it's been involved in. But even since that article was written, Ron, is we've done projects for electrical utilities because there's, you know, now you've got the deregulated uh, retail energy, which sure. is the same the same kind of concept. They have the same problem. We've worked for uh, one of the largest... Producers of generic pharmaceuticals, and the question is, well, how, how do we target the the again the right product to the right customer at the right time for the right price? And using these concepts, they've been able to to boost their sales, and and by by understanding well which which pharmacies should we be calling on and selling what what products at what price? Uh, a huge opportunity now, and and this is fun one for those of us who love dynamic, really tough dynamic problems is with the big box retailers. So Amazon is just, you know, they're just the giant. They're huge. Mm-hmm. And they've taken all this market power and and they have low prices and lower costs than anybody else out there. And so the question would be, well, how does someone who's who's got the, the boxes already, so they've got higher costs, so they've already got the, the you know, they're this, Structure, how do they compete with someone like Amazon? And we've been able to go in and do a lot of data analysis, and we can tell them when and where they can get more than Amazon and when they have to charge the same, or sometimes even what products they have to charge less than Amazon. Right. Yeah. Even though they've got the, the, you know, in their head the perception of, well, we've got, you know, instant gratification. You can buy it here, you buy it off the shelf, you don't have to wait for Amazon to deliver it. Right. But it's still, going going, go ahead. You know, the, the question is: What's the value to that consumer at that point in time? You know, at the at the point they're ready to make the purchase, and they have all this information on their devices, right? And contrast that with
4: an, another organization that I look to as, as a, a great pricing organization is Apple who almost does the opposite, which is you know, the limited number of SKUs, very okay. static pricing, right. but right. they really know how to skim.
1: <laughs> well, but Apple's,
4: you know, Apple is
1: virtually unique. There may be you know, uh, there are a handful of like, luxury goods, manufactured, et cetera, that have such brand power, and they're smart about leveraging the, the brand and the brand power. Right, everybody. Nobody else could play by Apple's rules, and and it'll be interesting to see how long Apple can continue to play by Apple's rules. But but right now they've got the brand power, and they're exploiting it. And now they're coming out with their Apple Watch, and they're definitely. I think they're pushing going to push the limits. We'll see on
3: the Apple Watch what they can. Yeah, the ten thousand dollar gold one. (laughs) Seventeen, (laughs) seventeen (laughs) thousand. It'd be fascinating. Watch. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> but which leads me to this this, this question it, and i work for a software company and you know i it, the article that ron just mentioned talked about applying all of these concepts to uh, all of these different industries and even uh, the, the one section on non-perishable goods uh, such as uh, at ford but really in, in this way uh, software is unique in that it's Non perishable, but it's also expandable and changeable we're going through a huge shift in our industry right now, getting away from what was you know on premises software where you purchased mm-hmm. the license to use on and then moving over to the subscription model mm-hmm. um, and man and it's all it's it's causing all kinds of consternation <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and there's very few that have done it right uh, any thoughts on, on on that transition
1: you know that, that is i mean right but the the question really is going to be, and I think one of the the things that uh that I know you're wrestling with is well, what is the value proposition to the to the customers and how do they uh, how do they do it? so you're not going to be able to get the license fees up front and the you know all the all the things you wanted, but hopefully with the subscription model, if you are able to advance the software et cetera that you you keep this Base of customers, and you you know you can keep uh, upgrading them, selling them uh, new new uh, packages, new capabilities a lot more conveniently and easily than you could in you know with the with a previous model. But it is you know. But from the pricing perspective, you're you're going to have to find that, that price point. But what we have found, and I don't know what, what you do, but the, the first step is really segmenting the customers. And understanding what they want and what they're willing to pay, and you know what they're willing to pay for, et cetera, and and I don't know how much time you spend on, you know, customer segmentation, and it's not just by status, but by you know uh, buying behavior. We at our, our summit that I spoke about one of the things we talked about is some new concepts in uh, customer segmentation, and that is uh, one of them, one of the concepts was predictive segmentation, so not about what is their their current, not segmenting customers on their current status, you know, what's their profitability, what do they buy, etc., but on their potential status, what should they be buying, what could they be buying, what's their lifetime value to us. And that's a that would be a that, fascinating topic yes. to discuss.
4: Yes. Yes, no, absolutely. And it, it it is it is a huge struggle for for us. I mean, the 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 best advice I think we've gotten is, well, if you're going to change the pricing model, make sure you do it during a downturn because your numbers are going to stink anyway. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> That that's right.
4: <laughs> like, okay, that gives us a lot of hope. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Hey, Bob, you you know, you mentioned the growth of how pricing is just starting to to grow and expand into these different industries. And, and you know, when you go to professional pricing conferences now, there's a lot more people in the field. There's a lot more exhibitors. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more books. There's more women involved yes. in, in this discipline, I see. But do you still see cost plus pricing as endemic to most companies?
1: You, you know, I... Uh, it 's not nearly as bad as it was, so when my book came out, I really bashed you did off, I, I loved it <laughs> pricing i mean it was I just thought it was stupid it' was idiotic. There are still so many people that still do it, mostly they 're industrial, you know larger industrial, and it often happens actually where where the uh, where the pricing is set un, under the finance organization because that 's what they look at right they look right. at the cost and they, they try to add a margin and say what what you know what, what's our margin rather than looking at well what's the value proposition to the uh, to our client but it's it's changed and it is it is changing a lot one thing though uh, let me talk about the kind of the pricing practice that i found fascinating over the last uh, couple of decades is that we're seeing the elevation of the people who are in pricing 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 professionals, they used to be like six, seven, or eight, tiers down from the CEO. Now, nice. many organizations, they're one or two tiers from the CEO. From
3: the CEO. here in the C suite. And, and, and you know what? It, you're responsible for that and and, and, well, and all the other thought leaders. And you guys have moved pricing into the C suite. And that's why I just, I'm in awe of what you've been able to do in the last 20, 30, you know, some odd years. Bob, we need well, to take I'd a break. Be, unfortunately, okay. time marches on. But uh, when we come back, I'm going to ask you two questions. So I'll let you ponder this in our break. Okay. I want to ask you, who, which, which industry do you think? are the best pricers on the planet. And then I want to ask you, which country do you think leads the world in pricing skills? In the meantime, folks, um, you can follow us on, uh, you can follow the show at verisage.com slash TSOE. And you can also contact Ed or myself at TSOE at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from Ed's employer, Sage.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights believe in your numbers see what sage can do for your business visit believeinyournumbers.com today
2: have you ever read a book that changed your life i sure have but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life me neither hello i'm greg kite i wrote the forward to ron baker and ed kless's new ebook the soul of enterprise dialogues on business in the knowledge economy The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V E R A S A G E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise
4: and we're back with Bob Cross Bob thank you for appearing on the show just as we take, take you through this last segment but we really appreciate uh, your, your spending the time with us today and, and sharing your knowledge and insights about this so thanks
1: thank you Ed hey, before we get into the, the questions that uh, Ron posed I, I've got to tell you how much I enjoyed your book I appreciate the advanced copy of, of your book Soul of Enterprise you and Ron wrote a phenomenal book I don't know if Ron shared my comments uh, with you, but I, I well, as soon as I put the book down, the first thought that came to me was that the takeaways that I had from the book—you know, you can go through an MBA, you can spend the time getting an MBA, etc.—but you're not going to get any more than you got as a takeaway. What really sticks with you and stays with you after your MBA, then, then. W- than I got from just the conversations that you had, just eavesdropping on, on you guys talking. I just thought it was a phenomenal book. Thank you so much.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Bob. That's awesome. You you will be in the next one when we do it when we do a triologues <laughs> on the knowledge economy with our guests. So. <laughs> uh, <that's good. laughs> um, so so Bob, who do you think? Uh, which industry has the best pricers, in your opinion?
1: I really think at this point in time, I think hands down, it's the hotel industry, hospitality, which is really funny because for years and years it was the airlines. It was airlines, I mean, sure. Airlines have have gotten stale. They I don't think they really understand how to price their product anymore. I think they've they've gone to add on fees, a lot of annoying, you know, baggage and and uh, yes. uh, check in fees and and uh, you know. Change fees, etc, and I think the hotels really understand as far as being able to pr- because it's they have the same kind of a open marketplace that, the, uh, that that you can get on Expedia or there are all these different channels you can look at and they they've done a great job of understanding what is the value of their room and be able to differentiate their their brand the value of their, the different rooms that, that but it's all based upon customer perception. Right. And, I, and I think you can see in their numbers too; they're they're very very successful.
3: And you know, just one thing: you know, profits have, have stayed pretty well, like in the stock market. You know, company profits are are are, are pretty strong, actually, even though we've been in these uh, you know difficult economic, slow growth, anemic times. And I have to say, one issue I never hear reported in the news, but I think one of the reasons profits are so strong is because of pricing talent and pricing skill in these companies. I mean, you point out in this milestone argument that over the past few decades, revenue management has added tens of billions of dollars to net profits in hundreds of firms.
1: It's, it is, it's amazing. It's staggering. And it is, it is cool because it's just – it is – the the epitome of knowledge and, and using knowledge to generate to create wealth to create prosperity. We, one of the things that I love each each of our clients. We're our our company is, is growing. It's growing pretty well. It's it's tough to grow because just finding the skill sets. So one of the things that we've had to do to to kind of keep our our client-customer growth, you know, is we will only engage with a client if we can work with them and identify $100 million worth of incremental value to them. Mm-hmm. So, and and But that's relatively easy to do on these big, multi-billion-dollar companies, right? Right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But- Yeah, that's amazing because, you know, in our world, as you know, we work with professional firms and it's so hard to get them out of their existing, you know, we sell time and to show them the gains that you can make with pricing that, like you point out in your book, dwarf anything else they could do, increasing efficiency, cutting costs, all of these things, so… It, it's a real uphill battle in the professional world hopefully we'll be able to, to do a good enough job a, a good job as you have in the rest of the.
4: Yeah. And, and I just want to jump in here too and just say once again that here here's and because I, I this is such an important point to me but you know Bob talking about the the millions of dollars uh, I and mean billions of dollars that have uh, put put been put to profits but also it makes the customers happier. And that's the thing that I just can't – you know, I can't say that enough to people because they just think that it's about, oh, it's about maximizing your profitability. No, this is a customer-focused issue. Exactly.
1: Is. exactly. If it's, if it's not win-win, it, you're not going to – it's not going to be successful, period. Long-term, it mm-hmm. is not going to be successful. You can stick it to somebody one day, but the customers
3: have to win in the long term right in fact bob you point you do such a good job pointing this out in your other article that we didn 't get to but customer centric pricing, and you give so many great examples in there about how focusing on the customer not only makes you more profitable but a ha- for a much happier customer as well mm-hmm. so we'll we'll certainly link to that on our show notes on our website but which country Bob leads the world in pricing
1: well it's just got to be the the u s and you know and i don't mean to sound. You know, ethnocentric or anything, but the, but the truth is we're just, we're just innovators and we're, we're capitalists. We're always looking for an edge and and everybody and leaders in technology, et cetera. And, and, uh, and across the, across all the industries, I I don't doubt that, that we're really, uh, really leading. Give you an example. We, we had at our summit recently, we had uh, 50 executives, but but the diversity of the, of the companies that were there. So we had 29 different companies represented in 17 different industries and $350 billion worth of revenue in, in the wow. small room, just 50 executives there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but they were all passionate about this, this space that we are passionate about as well.
3: Uh, you know and, and, when uh, and
1: virtually all american based companies, not
3: that we weren 't trying to recruit us, some some were foreign, but right, right no, I, I agree with you. I, I think the USA leads, and, and i don 't want to sound jingoistic, but that 's been my experience and i 've even asked everybody else in the pricing world about that, and they all kind of say the USA as well, so <clears throat> it's just um, that 's kind of interesting to know that we 're kind of the thought leaders in that well, well Bob, this has just been outrageously fun. I knew this hour would just sail by. Uh, but how can people find you? They wanted oh. to get a hold of you.
1: Yeah, our uh, company's Revenue Analytics at www.revenueanalytics.com and uh, I am Cross at revenueanalytics.com. That's the best way to getting a hold of me, but uh, I'd encourage them get get on the website, read some of the some of our case studies get our case studies and examples uh, I think that, uh, as you know, there's no end to the, the way these new techniques can be applied, and to, to as you know, you create prosper, prosper, prosperity, create wealth, right. just by right. making better decisions.
3: Well, Bob, keep up the great work, and again, thank you so much for joining us. This has well, just been an absolute honor to be able to, <laughs> to, to chat with you and to get to know you, so thank you so much. I've and, enjoyed it. Let's get together before too long. And we'll have you back on for sure, I hope, if you're willing. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, and Ed. Again. Thank you. And Ed, what's on uh, store for next week?
4: Next week we have a, another interview with Anthony Clark, who is the author of a book called The Last Campaign – how presidents rewrite history and that book will be released earlier next week so we will be one of the among the first to interview him about that it's about presidential libraries and the story behind them uh, and from, from an economic standpoint it's going to be a oh. fascinating fascinating talk
3: oh awesome those are my hobbies so that's excellent <laughs> well i'll see you in 167 hours sounds good This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by sage supporting small and medium sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed join us next week at 4 p.m. Eastern 1 p.m. Pacific where we'll be interviewing Anthony Clark and his book the last campaign on presidential libraries in the meantime you can check out our show notes at verisagecom slash TSOE for more information and we will certainly post all of Bob's articles and his books up there. And folks, you can contact Ed or myself at tsoe at berisage.com. See you next week, and thank you so much for listening.